This evening we're going to be back in our series studying the book of James. And this time around we're going to be specifically looking at chapter 1 and verses 9, 10 and 11. So this can be found on page 1011 in the church Bible if you want to use one of those. It's James chapter 1, specifically verses 9, 10 and 11. From verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exhortation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away. In the midst of his pursuits. Now, when I was a young boy, I can remember the uh, older people in my family always talking about how fast time flew by. Maybe you heard that too. And now that I've become that older person, I too can be found often repeating that very same sentiment. And not only does time go by quickly, we can also observe how things seem to fade away with time. Now, a silly modern example of this would be to look at how excited some people get over the release of the, the latest iPhone. It seems that with every new edition, you get a queue of people, don't you? You've probably seen it on the news, camping out in tents overnight outside the shop, wanting to be the first to, to hold this shiny new gadget. The excitement on their face. And then what happens two years later? The new one comes out and this once treasured item gets relegated to the sock drawer. Money and the, the stuff it can buy, as well as status and achievements, even relationships, they all eventually fade away, don't they? Now, it's not the most encouraging of thoughts, but it's quite likely that in a hundred years' time, no one will even know that any of us existed apart from an entry on a on a family tree somewhere we all fade away in the midst of our pursuits now if you can try and hold on to that thought as we go through our time together this evening because it's one of the the key themes that will help us understand and apply what this passage is about this evening now it's been a month or so since we were last in James together. So let's remind ourselves of the, the context as to where we find ourselves this evening. So what we have here is a, is a letter written by James, the, the half-brother uh, of, of Jesus. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. You may remember this was a time when the, the Jewish Christians were facing both financial and violent persecution leading them to, to flee their homes in Israel. You might remember the economy for these Jewish believers was, was turned off overnight, wasn't it? Meaning that it became illegal to buy or sell anything to them. This included food. And just as you can imagine, this resulted in a, in a huge number of them dispersing all across the world. And as these Jewish believers in Christ left their homes and businesses, many of them were limited to what they could physically carry. People that were extremely wealthy on Thursday had nothing on Friday. Lives 
utterly turned upside down. People that may have once held impressive reputations for being extremely successful, living busy lives with lots of plans, suddenly had nothing as they headed off to another land, having to start from scratch all over again. As you can imagine, money and people's status would have been a huge issue for the recipients of this letter. Now, it would be fair to assume that James, being the head of the, the church in Jerusalem at this time, would have been looking to scratch where he knew that his people had an itch, so to speak. This just makes good pastoral sense, doesn't it? As an example of how Pastor David was to, to write a letter to us whilst he's on sabbatical in a few months' time, he would, he would do so, wouldn't he, with the church in mind? I'm sure that he'd be there picturing different people as he wrote it and would pastorally be mentioning subjects that he knew were relevant uh, to us, to encourage us and to, to minister to us. He wouldn't, for example, concern himself by telling us not to eat meat sacrificed to idols because he knows that that isn't an issue for us in Eastbourne today. However, if he knew that many of us had become homeless and poor overnight, that would have featured quite high up in his letter to us, wouldn't it? And that's what's happening here. So it's with a pastor's heart that the author addresses his readers in the midst of these trials, and he reminds them of the principles of the upside-down kingdom. That many who are first will be last, and the last first. In fact, regardless of their temporary situation in life, whether rich or poor, ultimately, they all have the same great need, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to really get the gist of what's going on in, in our three verses this evening, we need to know the context of what James is speaking about. Trials. The testing of one's faith. Now, let's just pause for one second because I want to point out that James here is writing to Jewish Christians. These are saved, born-again believers. We know this because he calls them brothers and sisters, doesn't he? Now, it's important that we recognize this because the, the trials and the testing that a Christian has are for a different purpose than those that a non-believer has. But for Christians, and that's what we're looking at this evening, these trials in our passage are used to develop Christian maturity. What's happening to the, the Jewish believers in our passage isn't just a, a case of bad luck. This is God working in and through these believers, testing and maturing their faith, and whilst doing so, fulfilling his own redemptive plan so that the gospel will be taken out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, and taken to the ends of the earth. The all-knowing God of the Bible is in complete control and he is working all things for good for those that love him. As Charles Spurgeon famously said, when we go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which we lay our head. It's true, isn't it? The trials are sent to, to test our faith and ultimately they are for the believer's good. Now, John MacArthur, when preaching on this passage, provides, I think, a helpful illustration. Did you know that a, a jeweller has a very effective test to find out if a diamond is real? It's called the water test. 
Apparently, uh, an imitation stone is on the surface, as sparkly and as brilliant as a genuine stone, and it can be hard for the untrained eye to tell the difference. However, if you pop them both in water, and a genuine diamond will continue to sparkle brilliantly, while the imitation becomes dull and lifeless. Now, unfortunately, I didn't have two diamonds to actually test this this week, so we'd have to take John MacArthur's word for this. But what he's saying, all you need to do is place one alongside the other underwater, and the difference is immediately apparent. MacArthur goes on to say, he says, These are, there, there are some who believe themselves to be Christians on the surface, but who go on to find out that when their faith is placed under testing, it loses all of its brilliance, showing itself in fact to be an imitation. And this is the primary concern here for James, isn't it? James knows and tells his readers that by the testing of one's faith, this will reveal the strength or weakness of it. And this is just one way in which trials are for our good. And of course, there are many more, aren't there? Trials are used to wean us off of being in love or, or too comfortable in this world. Trials are used to encourage us in, in seeking the Lord. Trials are used to give us an eternal perspective so that the believers can hold all that they have, good and bad, with an open hand. Trials are used to, to hold up a mirror to ourselves, to reveal our sin and to show us our utter dependency on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trials can humble us and, and bring us to prayer and strengthen our relationship with the Lord. Many of us here can give testimony to these things. And we know, don't we, that life is filled with these tests. We've all lived long enough to know that. In the book of Job, we're reminded that man lives just a, a few days and they are full of trouble. In one of David's Psalms, he cries out to God, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. Life is short and trials are plenty. So with this in mind, let's just pedal back a few verses from our, our text today and, and, and read our passage from verse 2. James says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And then from our verses this evening, verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And this is why context is is so important. Taken in isolation, we would have missed the point that our three verses this evening are found in in a whole passage of text talking about trials. And why is James doing this? Because he's now dealing with the trials that affect someone's position and and status in life. He begins in verse 9, doesn't he? With the lowly brother, meaning the poor brother. And for the poor believer, poverty is a test, isn't it? You've been in a situation where you really need something, but you, you can't afford it. It's really hard, isn't it? You might be in that situation now. But James's counsel isn't to, to feel sorry about your circumstances or to become angry with God or to be jealous of those that do have more money than you. No. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. This is the eternal perspective. The ability to, to look forward and beyond one's financial means or status here in this temporary, fleeting world been said before hasn't it that if you want to find out someone's character take away all that they love and this often reveals the heart certainly this was satan's thinking when wanting to go and test job wasn't it do you remember in job chapter one when he said you've blessed the work of job's hands and his possessions have increased in the land but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face We may recognise a little bit of this that's crept into modern Christianity today. It's completely wrong, but I think it can be common for a believer to to fall into the trap of thinking that the more money that they have, the more that the Lord loves them. Somehow mistakenly assurance can sometimes be tied to people's emotions and, and happiness. They can attach the buoyancy of their faith to their circumstances. And all the times that things are going well with great relationships and the job is going brilliant and life is good, then as soon as something begins to rock, then we have a problem. One of the main reasons for that is that in so many churches today, it's become popular just to to major in the blessings of being in Christ. There just simply isn't a category for trials. So what then happens when they come? The immature believer is left surprised and ill-prepared. In the Bible, we're told to to put on the armour of God for a reason. And you may have noticed, there isn't a verse telling us to take the armour off. We are in the middle of a supernatural war. And the enemy isn't a a, a part-timer or casual in its efforts in wanting to destroy Christians. No, no. We're told by the Apostle Peter to be sober-minded, to be watchful, because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And these are crucial things for us to know. We need to know this so that we can be prepared. If a lion was let loose and was walking down South Street, we'd like to think that we'd be alert, right? We need to know these things so that we can recognise it in one another's lives, so that we can encourage one another with scripture. 
We have an enemy that wants to ruin our faith, to destroy our families, end the local church. We're not prepared when we walk around in denial and blissfully ignorant. No. We're prepared when we are watchful, when we're alert, and by knowing what could be coming around the corner. And as our lived experience gives evidence, there are trials in all circumstances, aren't there? We're tested by our trials when we have a lot and are, are rich, and we are tested when we have nothing and are poor, as we see in our text. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exhortation. This believer in our text may be physically poor, but he is to boast in his high inheritance, hidden in Christ, as one commentator put it. We're not to sulk by looking at how well off other people are. We're not to cover what they have or become jealous or hateful towards what the Lord has given them to steward. Now, if you've ever spoken with believers who live in poor parts of the world, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you were stunned by how content with very little and how full of joy they often are. A couple of years ago, I spoke with a pastor in Zambia, and this wasn't a, a, a wealthy place to, to live. And during that conversation, it really, really made me think because he told me how worried he was for the church in the West. And do you know why he was worried? He was worried because of how much we had and how supposedly self-sufficient that we had become. This was a man that had learned to be thankful and content with the little that he had. This is a man that is able to boast of his riches found in the Lord and more than that. He could see the trials associated with being rich in this world. We know, don't we, that as Christians, our mission isn't to, to go through life collecting as many treasures as possible or by making our lives as comfortable as they can be. We know, don't we, from Scripture, this world is not our home. We are sojourners passing through. And of course, with this message being uploaded to the internet, what being poor looks like in different contexts is very different, isn't it? A relatively poor person here in Eastbourne would look like a, a rich person in some parts of the world today. They would also look rich compared to the people being addressed here in our letter 2,000 years ago. Just the fact that we have clean running water on tap, regular food and drink, a sealed clean place to live and clothes and, and health care, we would be considered very rich by some. In the context of our passage, we get an insight, actually, into what Paul looked like to James and his readers. In chapter 2, verse 15, he says, they were poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. That doesn't describe many of us here in the UK, does it? The problem is that many of us have bought into the culture where we never settle, and it doesn't seem to matter how much we have. It's never enough, is it? So many of us have caught the bug I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when I get a new car. I'll be happy when I get a new job. I'll be happy when I retire. It's life's very own mirage. Because what happens when you get there? How long does that happiness last? Stuff. 
no matter how much of it we collect along the way, can never fill that Jesus-shaped hole that we all have. In fact, many of us would confess to fail to even recognize the Lord's good hand and provision from one day to the next, I'm sure. It isn't until these blessings are, are removed that we notice them, is it? An example of this, up until two years ago, had you ever found yourself grateful for toilet roll? In my mind, it was always just something that was magically there. But what happened overnight when everyone ran out? Toilet roll suddenly become one of the most sought-after products in the country, didn't it? And see, when we had it before the shops ran out, we didn't recognise it. And yet, as soon as it was taken away, how our eyes lit up when we saw that Tesco's had been restocked overnight. And this is true for hundreds, if not thousands of things that we are blessed with every day that we probably don't pause to recognise from one day to the next, from one week to the next, from one month to the next. Now, the boasting that we see in our passage is, is not in himself, but it is in and through the Lord. We know, don't we, that there's a wrong way to boast. To boast in ourselves, to, to glory in ourselves as if our, our gifts and graces and riches are something to do with us. But what does the Bible say? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, these things, as well as our salvation, are allocated for and provided by our sovereign God. In James chapter 2, which we'll read at a later date, Lord willing, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? In Jeremiah chapter 9, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And that's right, isn't it? The physically poor are to, to boast in their spiritual wealth, the eternal riches that they have in God's grace. To lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Now I know it's not popular today. Sorry, I know it is popular today, unfortunately. To turn on Christian TV and hear that God wants everyone to be healthy and wealthy and to live their best life now. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And nor is it that the lived experience of a huge majority of Christians living in the world today. Clearly, clearly God allows some believers to be poor and some to be rich because he uses these conditions to test believers. He also knows that for some, being rich would be terrible for them. I know some might struggle with that and, and think that we know better, but we need to trust that God knows best. It may not be until the other side of eternity that we will be thankful for the doors that the Lord closed, for the prayers that he said no to. We have an infinitely wise God, don't we, who loves those that are his and he knows what's best. Our ways are not like his. 
Now, to help illustrate this, just, just think of a child that, that may think that they know best. I know that's rare. For those of us that are mums and dads, I'm sure that we've all been asked at some point if our child can take some sort of fizzy drink to bed with them. Now, I know in that moment that saying yes would instantly make me a hero, the best dad in the world, what a cool dad their friends would think, until we have to go and see the dentist. And we're like that child, aren't we? We may think that we know what's best, but do we? It'd be foolish to think that the rich person's life is, is trouble-free and any easier. As our possessions multiply, so do cares and temptations. When is enough enough? How many lottery winners have you seen interviewed over the years, cursing the day that they won the jackpot? Having money just changes the sorts of trials and temptations you have. It doesn't make you immune to them. The rich, and contextually I include myself in this, are prone to pride and self-sufficiency. We can see this in our own prayer lives, can't we? How many of us here have had to sincerely pray for God to give us today our daily bread? I know that we've all said the Lord's Prayer, but how much more would we mean it if we had no idea where our next meal was going to come from? Imagine if we were in the middle of a famine. Imagine the impact that it would have in how we pray. Imagine what it would do to the attendance of our prayer meetings. When we're rich, it can be a, a, a temptation to think that we are self-sufficient and one could begin to think that we can manage on our own and what a huge and foolish mistake that is. Because the truth is, we can't survive a second without God, can we? Consider the countless things that God is doing in every one of our bodies in any given second to keep us alive. Let's just take one of those things, blinking. How many times have we all blinked since being here this evening? Imagine for whatever reason you were unable to blink for an hour. Imagine how uncomfortable and painful that would be. But what can I do to boast about how I operate my blinking? I haven't got the first clue about how my body does it, but I am thankful that it does. We're not self-sufficient at all, and we are fools when we begin to think that we are. And if we're struggling with that idea, just, just imagine if God was to say, okay, smarty pants, you, you maintain your body for the next 60 seconds. How do we do that? What do we do? How, how do I make my heart pump? How do I tell my veins to, to carry the blood? How do I do anything? I'll be dead. We need the Lord for every second of every day. Because the truth is, we're not as great and as clever as we can fool ourselves into thinking that we are. We're creatures. And it's why the rich are to boast in his or her humiliation. And let's remember the context of our passage, because it's important. This was a live issue for many of the recipients of James's letter, wasn't it? Some of them would have been very rich, having left behind all sorts of treasure that they couldn't carry. But where is it now? It's left behind, perishing. The riches are fading away. And how will they react through this trial? Will they, will they become angry? Will they become bitter and resentful? Because for the rich, both 2,000 years ago and today, Prosperity is a test because the rich man must also boast, but he must boast 
and that he is made low. He must boast in his humiliation. Why is that? Because just like the poor man, the rich man has to recognize his total depravity, his great need for salvation, and the fact that no amount of money or status can buy his salvation. Regardless of wealth, we all come to Christ in the same way, empty-handed. Just like the line from Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's us. That's all of us, regardless of whether you have pennies or whether you have millions in the bank. It's irrelevant, isn't it? Because on the last day, all of that stuff will be burnt up. And it's with this in mind that James, at the end of our passage this evening, quotes from the book of Isaiah. Just like the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. Now these flowers of the grass were well known in in Israel and they didn't tend to, to live very long. They come to bloom in May and die quickly in Israel's early summer heat. Just like the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. Likewise, those who are rich need to recognise that someone who who trusts in wealth rather than in Jesus are chasing the wind. It'd be helpful for us to recall the, the prayer of Proverbs 30. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord's? Or I may become poor and still, and so dishonour the name of my God. Such wisdom, isn't it? And as we draw to a close, I know that we can be prone to think that the grass is, is greener in other people's lives. We may look at the trials of others and think that they've been dealt a, a better hand than ours. But the Lord is a great, great teacher. He knows exactly what we all individually need to learn because these trials that we face are bespoke as they are drawn from our very own desires. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When I first became a Christian, I heard someone once say that there are three seasons in a believer's life. You're either about to go into a trial, you're either in the middle of a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. And truth be told, sometimes I think all three is going on. They just come in different shapes and sizes and and in all different flavours, don't they? Rich or poor, all believers have them. So what's the key takeaway here? When, when, not if, when you encounter the various trials of life, whenever that next happens, look at Christ and think beyond this life. We are a people that are to to set our eyes on eternity and to the joyous reality that is beyond this life here on earth. That's what faith is, isn't it? That's one of the sad things about not being a Christian. 
Because there is no future hope beyond this life, is there? There is no hope of eternal life. And there is no comforter in this life. But it doesn't have to be this way. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins whilst you still can. Let's pray.